You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. In 230 AD, things were going okay for the fledgling religion of Christianity. The Roman Emperor Alexander Severus was a tolerant and cosmopolitan leader who favored religious pluralism and in several instances even protected and favored the young Jesus cult. Compared to the first 150 odd years of its existence, it was smooth sailing for Christendom and for Christendom's leader, Pope Urban I, right up until the end. Several sources paint a more tumultuous picture of Urban's pontificate, and while the story they tell is no longer accepted by the Catholic canon, it was, for many centuries, considered the gospel truth. Is that a pun? Close. According to that story, while the Roman Emperor was cool on Christ, the Roman Provost, Almachius, was not. And he persecuted the Christians in the style of the time, beheading St. Cecilia. Urban and six of his underlings went into hiding, but were discovered by one of the Provost's servants and brought to him on charges of deceiving 5,000 Romans into conversion. Urban was tortured and thrown in prison, which Almachius hoped would break his faith. But soon he received reports from the jailers that Urban was converting more people in prison. And Almachius brought Urban and his confederates forward to a temple of a Roman god and demanded he pray at the feet of a tall stone idol. Urban did as commanded, but he prayed to his own god, the Christian god, who according to the legend, caused the massive idol to topple and fall, crushing 22 pagan priests to death. <coughs> then, according to the legend, Urban and his bishops were tortured again, brought before the fallen idol, and given one last chance. They spit upon it and were consequently beheaded. Which is how Pope Urban I became Saint Urban I. <coughs> Like I say, not even the Catholic Church believes this happened anymore. It's generally assumed that Urban had an urbane life and even death in keeping with the prevailing sentiment of Emperor Alexander Severus. But plenty of other popes allegedly performed miracles which the Church maintains to this day as legitimate. For instance, six years after Urban's reign came to an end, Antares died two months into his own papacy. 
Unlike Urban, Antares probably was martyred, and a new papal election was held in 236 AD. For 13 days, no one could agree on whom should ascend, until, out of the blue, a pure white dove flew into the scene like out of a John Woo movie and landed on the head of an unknown Roman soldier. According to the historian Eusebius, this caused the assembly to cry out in unison, mind you, he is worthy, he is worthy, he is the elect of God. And that is how this random Roman soldier was named Pope Fabian I. The 15th century Liber Pontificalis, or Book of Popes, says that Gregory II sent three baskets of bread, which he had blessed, to Otto the Great, Duke of Aquitaine, who was at the time being besieged by the invading Umayyad Caliphate at the city of Toulouse. Before Otto made his counterattack, he had the bread divided up and eaten by his men, who soon routed Al-Khwani's army. When the battle was done, Otto took stock of his army and found that none of those who had eaten the bread had received so much as a paper cut in the fighting. This story, too, is no longer taken as factual. Pope Pius X is supposed to have cured many sick people in the early 20th century, including a child who had been paralyzed from birth, who was placed in Pius's lap, and after just a few minutes, didn't just move or stand or walk, but ran around the room. Agapetus I cured a paralyzed man, too. John XXIII posthumously cured a gastric hemorrhage. Shortly after John Paul II died of Parkinson's, a nun by the name of Sister Marie Simon Pierre, who suffered likewise from the same disease, prayed to the departed Pope and woke up free and clear. And Pope Cornelius, who had died in 253, came to be known as the patron saint of lovers more than a thousand years later, when a young woman in Rhineland fell in love with an artist who had been brought in to decorate a church at Neuss. Her father forbade their romance, saying he wouldn't bless their union unless the Pope did first. At which point, a statue of Cornelius took to life, leaned over, and bowed to the couple. In the church's early days, miracles were something of a bonus. The most important factor for the sainthood of Cornelius and Urban and Fabian was their martyrdom. Although, in Urban's case, even that part of the story is in doubt. It was only as Christianity moved from oppressed to, let's face it, oppressor, that miracles took on an important part in the canonization of saints. I am, I don't think that this should surprise anyone, extremely dubious about the existence of miracles as a concept, let alone the idea that a statue should perform a wedding. I take the position of one of the blessed saints of skepticism, philosopher David Hume. Hume defines a miracle as a transgression of a law of nature by a particular volition of the deity or by the interposition of some invisible agent. Nothing is esteemed a miracle, he writes in An Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding, if it ever happen in the common course of nature. It is no miracle that a man, seemingly in good health, should die on a sudden, because such a kind of death, though more unusual than any other, has yet been frequently observed to happen. 
But it is a miracle that a dead man should come to life, because that has never been observed in any age or country. When you want to determine whether a miracle has occurred, Hume says, you have to weigh the evidence for and against. But since a miracle must definitionally defy the laws of nature, the con side of the scale is always filled with the entire weight of human understanding and experience. Every statue that has ever been witnessed to not move, and every reason to believe it cannot. The pro side is screwed from the jump. The very nature of miracles is their defiance of nature. To put it another way, we should never favor the impossible in place of the possible. In the case of Cornelius's bowing statue, we can think of many more reasonable and parsimonious explanations than a miracle. Did this event even happen at all? Did the artist or the young woman or her father even exist or are they fictions? If they did live, how can we trust that they partook in the story? If they did tell the story themselves, how can we trust that they were being honest? And if they were being honest, how can we know that they weren't deceived? By an illusion or some unknown prankster? By Hume's logic, any miracle will fall to the possible. Say that we could prove that the artist and the girl and her father were real, and that they had themselves honestly seen the statue bow, and that furthermore, we somehow knew that nobody else was around to dress as a statue or cast lights in some way that make it appear to move or whatever. Say that the only skeptical explanation available is a real Rube Goldbergian affair, an earthquake paired with a high tide conspiring with a gopher hole and a talking parrot. Say that the only explanation, actually, let's, let's go with this one, is that every atom in the statue, in defiance of all probability, happened to pull in the same direction at the same moment. That would be a ridiculous explanation, right? But still, it is less improbable than a miracle, because that is the point of a miracle. If you side with Hume... You can deny all papal miracles categorically. From Urban to John Paul, you don't even really have to hear the facts. The die is already cast. Except for one. The time Pope John Anglicus was proceeding from St. Paul's to the Lateran, when, in the middle of the road, he suddenly went into labor and gave birth. Which isn't nearly as miraculous as it might sound at first blush. Because, if the story is true, Pope John was really Pope Joan. And today, we are going to try to find out. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, The Holy She, Part 1. There are a lot of versions, variations, and mutations of the story of Pope Joan. But for our purposes, it all begins with Martinus Ordinus Predicatorum, or Martin of Opava. Martin was a Moravian friar 
who became chaplain to Pope Alexander IV and maintained that position through the next six popes. Later, he became an archbishop, but during his time serving popes in Rome, he made his most lasting contribution to Catholicism, the Chronicon Pontificum et Imperatorum, Chronicle of Popes and Emperors. The Chronicon became an immensely important book for tracking the history of the papacy, in part because Martin was such a high-ranking figure with such proximity to so many popes that his version of events was taken as approximately official, and in part because of its revolutionary layout. Flip open the Chronicon to any place, and what you'll see is two pages, left and right, running in parallel, with each page containing 50 lines. Each line describes a year in the papacy on the left side and the corresponding year in the empire on the right. It was an incredibly useful design. If you wanted to know who was pope in any year, you could just flip through until you hit the half century that year fell in. If you wanted to know who was emperor when that guy was pope, you could just scan to the other side of the fold. And if you wanted to know what pope followed that pope, you simply scrolled down. Martin's Chronicon was the medieval pre-printing press equivalent of a New York Times bestseller. It was copied more than 400 times and translated into nearly every language spoken by any Catholic anywhere. And that, generally speaking, was a good thing for preserving history. We don't know all the sources Martin used to compile the book, but for the most part, what we do know suggests he was quite dependable by medieval history standards. Usually, if Martin said something happened, it really did. And the entry for the year 857 reads... After Leo, John Anglicus, born at Mainz, was pope for two years, seven months, and four days, and died in Rome, after which there was a vacancy in the papacy of one month. It is claimed that this John was a woman, who as a girl had been led to Athens dressed in the clothes of a man by a certain lover of hers. There, she became proficient in a diversity of branches of knowledge until she had no equal and afterwards in Rome, she taught the liberal arts and had great masters among her students and audience. A high opinion of her life and learning arose in the city, and she was the choice of all for Pope. While Pope, however, she became pregnant by her companion. Through ignorance of the exact time when the birth was expected, she was delivered of a child while in procession from St. Peter's to the Lateran in a narrow lane between the Colosseum and St. Clement's Church. After her death, it is said she was buried in that same place. The Lord Pope always turns aside from the street, and it is believed by many that this is done because of aberrance of the event. Nor is she placed on the list of the holy pontiffs, both because of her female sex and on account of the foulness of the matter. That is the basic template. We'll get into where Martin might have gotten this story from down the line, but first we should say that it is anything but sure that Martin got it at all. Some early copies of the Chronicon contain this entry, and others do not. More suspiciously, the ones that do break Martin's 50 lines for 50 years format. The story of John Anglicus is obviously longer than a single line could accommodate, or even the three lines that would contain the entirety of John's supposed reign. 
Nowhere else in the Chronicon is this pattern violated. So it seems fairly safe to say that Martin was not the actual author of the passage. Nevertheless, it does find its way into the book quite early. Martin died in 1278, and by the 1290s, at the latest, John Anglicus had made his way into the Chronicon. Or I should, I suppose, say, her way. There is another detail in this version that should raise historical eyebrows. Martin, or more likely Martin's copyist, gives John the surname Anglicus, meaning roughly of England, but says she was born in Mainz, which is decidedly in Germany. It's not the biggest detail in the world, but it did lead to a lot of subsequent scholars, historians, apologists, and writers doing a bunch of backflips trying to square that info. Some considered that she may have been educated in England, or else that maybe there was a typo at play. Maybe Mainz was actually meant to be the Welsh town of Margam, or maybe it should have read Magnanimous. This makes more sense in Latin. Still, others thought the typo was with Anglicus, and that it was meant to be Angelicus. It's also worth noting what the Chronicon doesn't say, no matter how late an edition you find. It doesn't give any indication of the Popess's fate, nor that of her child, and it doesn't give her a female name of any sort, let alone the one that would eventually become widely associated with her, Pope Joan. For all of that information, you've got to look elsewhere. Pope Joan didn't become Pope Joan until the 1600s. Before that, she was known as Martin Calder, as John Anglicus, or sometimes just John, or John VIII, or John IX. She was called the female pope, or the popess. She was Johanna, she was Gilberta, she was Agnes, Glancia, Juta, and more. When she was given a fate, it was usually a rough one. She died in childbirth, or right after or survived childbirth but, exposed by it, was arrested, removed from the city, tied by the feet to the tail of a horse, and dragged from it until her skin was flayed and her bones all broken. But the writer Giovanni Boccaccio gave her a kinder end. He blamed the devil for seducing Joan, whom he called Gilberta, and wrote that, once exposed, she was left to pity her condition. An unknown copyist in Berlin found an almost happy conclusion for Joan's tale. In an even longer addendum to Martinovava's Chronicon's already suspiciously long story, this anonymous commentator explained that after her exposure, she was sent to do penance in a nunnery while her newborn son was raised up to somehow become a bishop. When she died, he had her body buried at Santa Aurea Basilica in Ostia. On account of which, the epilogue concludes, God has worked many miracles right up to the present day. But regardless of what name she was given, and what punishment she sustained, and what happened to her baby, the backbone of the story remained rigidly consistent. She was brought to Rome in drag by a lover, where she proved to be a wise, knowledgeable, and ambitious student. Soon enough, the student became a teacher, and when the Pope died, she was an easy choice to succeed him. Few sources say anything about her accomplishments as Pope. That's not very suspicious, because records of Popes at the time are all pretty rough. But we might as well assume she continued to be well-liked until, while proceeding from St. Peter's to the Lateran, she went into labor and was exposed. 
Are the basic bullet points of the story even feasible? Well, yeah, kinda. Moving in sequence, the first question that comes to mind is, why would Joan have been brought to Athens or Rome disguised as a man? And for that, we can come up with a couple of very reasonable answers. Even neglecting the possibility that Joan could have been trans or non-binary, the sort of thing chroniclers might have lacked any language to describe and most of the experience to imagine, it's clear that women in the early Middle Ages had a lot of reason to pass themselves off as male. The two most honking reasons are definitely present in the Joan legend. Women and girls who were traveling, as Joan supposedly was, were known to dress up like men in order to escape the attention of strangers, brigands, and soldiers who might otherwise sexually assault them, or, short of that, see them as easy targets for theft, extortion, or harassment. And if a woman was interested in education, even learning to read, let alone anything further, then passing herself off as male was one of a very few ways that might be achieved. It is also potentially worth saying that cross-dressing in either direction was probably easier to achieve in this time period than it would be now. While men's and women's fashion were cleanly differentiated, the hot couture for everyone in the period amounted to wearing sacks. Clothing was loose and long, easily disguising the shape of the wearer. Couple that with chronic malnutrition, which might delay or even arrest puberty or halt ovulation, and you've got a world in which passing long-term as a different gender was much easier than it would be a couple hundred years later, with the adoption of bust lines and meals. And there are a lot of stories about women succeeding in this sort of deception, becoming well-thought-of gentlemen, physicians, soldiers, monks, and even, yes, priests. Of course, there's a toupee fallacy at work here, too. We know of some women who disguised themselves as men, but we can ultimately only know those who eventually failed at the endeavor. The truly successful crossdressers of the age are, by definition, unknown. However, there is a big pot of cold water to dump over all of this because even if we take the number of known, real cross-dressing women of the period and multiply it several times over to make up for those who managed to stay covert, that figure would still pale in comparison to its competition. The fictional women who supposedly dressed like men. European society was, and is, really fascinated by these sorts of stories. They make up, like, half of Shakespeare's comedies. And a whole lot of these sorts of stories were long believed to be true, even though we now know, or at least strongly suspect, a lot of them were made up. Including most of the female monks and priests. Emphasis on most of, because we will come back to that caveat much later. Joan's story, irrespective of whether it is true or not, is a good one. But what makes it not just a good story, but a good mystery, is that we don't have to sit around weighing its plausibility in our heads like a thought experiment. If it actually happened, all accounts agree, it would have left real-world physical evidence. Meaning that there are a lot of ways to suss out whether Pope Joan actually existed. So let's dig in, right after this. 
Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Among the many versions of the St. Joan tale, there are four testable claims made about the consequences of her exposure. The first one is right there in Martin of Apava's Chronicon. He gives a really specific location for John Anglicus's labor on a road between St. Peter's and the Lateran, between the Colosseum and St. Clement's. It's no surprise that yes, there was a road there, exactly as he describes. After all, Martin lived in Rome. But he also says that after Joan gave birth upon it, future popes shunned that road. They avoided taking it, even though it was the most direct route between the two places they most frequently had to go. Also, although Martin has nothing to say about it, many other authors claim that on the road, near where the Pope gave birth, there was a statue of her erected. So that is testable claim number two. In several of the versions of the story that end with Joan being dragged around the city of Rome by a horse, a third claim is made, that a memorial was placed at the point of her death with an inscription upon it. The exact text of the inscription varies, but it's usually to the tune of, O Peter, father of fathers, betray the childbearing of the woman Pope. So that's claim number three. Fourth, and this one is surely the most delightful of the bunch, there are the rumors of a special marble seat which spread courtesy of an eclectic bunch of unrelated monks and friars and such. They claimed that this special marble seat 
had a hole in its middle, like a toilet seat or a bidet, and that when a new pope was being chosen, he sat upon it. The seat, you see, was a safeguard against ever electing another Pope Joan. Once seated, a bishop would approach the would-be pope, bend down, reach under the seat, and feel about for his testicles. Once he found them, he would make an announcement. In some versions, the language is supposed to be very straightforward. He has testicles, says the bishop. God be praised, answer the clerics. In another version, a little more discretion is deployed, with the bishop merely saying, he has them. But in another, much better version, the bishop intones in Latin, duos habit et bene pendentes. Translation, he has two, and they dangle nicely. God be praised. So, all right, there you go. Four actionable claims about St. Joan's existence. Was the street between St. Peter's and the Lateran really shunned? Was there a statue of St. Joan erected there? Was there a memorial stone at the place of her death? And was there a special chair with a hole in it at the Vatican to ensure new popes had balls? Yes, 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 and yes. I know, but wait, it's more complicated than that. Each of those yeses has a big asterisk. Let's start again with the street. It is called the Via Sacra, or Sacred Street. Today, a street called Via San Giovanni roughly follows where the section of the Via Sacra was, and it still connects the Lateran, where the Pope lives, to St. Peter's Cathedral. We know that it was, for a good long while, avoided by the Pope's procession. We even know that Pope Innocent VIII's new master of ceremonies, Bishop John Burchard, defied the custom in 1484. Probably he didn't know about the shunning, so he had the Pope pass right on Via Sacra, and he caught hell for it. While some historians have argued that the problem with the Via Sacra had to do with its width or its capacity or the like, Bishop Burchard's records are very clear on the reason. In going as in returning, he wrote, he came by the way of the Colosseum, and that straight road where the statue of the female pope is located, in token it is said that John Seven Anglicus gave birth there to a child. For that reason, many say the popes are never allowed to ride on horseback there. Therefore, the Lord Archbishop of Florence, the Bishop of Masano, and Hugo de Benci, the apostolic subdeacon, delivered a reprimand to me. That is two birds, one stone right there. But it is not quite that simple. It shows that popes avoided Via Sacra in the 1400s, as several other sources corroborate, and that the reason they did this was because they believed the story of Pope Joan. But throughout the 1300s, the church and the pope had been based in Avignon. When Catholicism returned to the Vatican in the late 1370s, they re-established traditions, and they certainly would have by then known about Joan and the shunned street through Martin's Chronicon. Now, there is evidence that popes avoided the street pre-Avignon, as far back as 1000 AD, but only Martin, or Martin's interpolator, give us that rationale. 
The cleanest explanation is that the Pope began avoiding the street due to the size of his procession around the turn of the millennium. But by the time the papacy returned to Rome in the late 14th century, the Pope Joan legend had taken seed. There is, however, another eye-raising detail, and that is that the section of road in question had yet another name, more like a, a nickname. And numerous sources, independent of and even before the Chronicon, make use of it. They call it Vicus Papisa. Vicus meaning roughly village, and Papisa meaning... Huh. Wow, really? No, no, not really. In fact, there is strong evidence that Vicus Papisa was called such because of an influential family, the Papes, who lived right there. Papisa meaning not Popet, but Mrs. Papes. It's probably not a coincidence. It's more likely that somebody misunderstood Vicus Papisa, knew the Pope avoided the street, and put two and two together, concluding this was where the legendary female Pope was meant to be. It could even be that this misunderstanding is the origin of the whole mess, though I doubt it. Long story short, the street is a dead end. Eh? Hmm. The statue is, uh, well, more complicated. The statue, or I should say, a statue definitely existed. It is attested to all over the place, not just by clerics like Bishop Burchard, but in the medieval equivalent of travel pamphlets of Rome, many of which tell tourists to make sure they go see the statue of the woman pontiff on Via Sacra. It's even described in the writings of Martin Luther, who was surprised to see it when he visited Rome in 1510, because it seemed to him like the Catholic Church would have done more to bury such an embarrassing relic. But we will come back to uh, all of that later. Making things more complicated, there is, to this day, a very tiny chapel at the corner of Via dei Santi Quattro and Via dei Quercetti, which is colloquially referred to as the Shrine of Pope Joan. It is about two blocks from the theoretically correct location and is about the size of an outhouse, with a heavy iron gate the only entrance. Inside is a very old and worn fresco of what could generously be taken as a woman nursing a child, but the halos in the frock give the game away. This is pretty obviously a painting of Mary and the Boy Christ, which probably dates from around 1500. At some point between then and now, people understandably came to suspect the shrine was made to Pope Joan, maybe because they couldn't find the statue that was supposed to be nearby and figured, close enough, but the shrine is definitely not related. Still, a statue did exist, maybe even at the time the shrine was built. The earliest mention of the statue dates to one of those Roman guidebooks, Mirabilia Urbis Romae, in 1375. 1375 is late enough that it's possible the statue was crafted in response to the story, as popularized by Martin's Chronicon, but that is not by any means a given. For one, because there's no record of it being commissioned or built or even appearing at that time. Also, when Pope Gregory XI returned to Rome from Avignon, he brought with him a notary named Dietrich of Nieheim. 
Dietrich described the statue in 1414 and said it was erected by Pope Benedict III, Joan's theoretical successor in the 870s. Of course, it's entirely plausible that Dietrich was wrong and that having just arrived in Rome after a century in France, he and the rest of the Holy See made a bunch of bad assumptions about their new landscape taken from Martin's Chronicon, like that the Via San Giovanni was supposed to be shunned and that some statue along the street represented Joan. The 20th century Italian historian Giuseppe Tomasetti believed he had even found the statue in question, still in good condition, at the Ciramonti Gallery. That statue is Roman, from the first century, probably depicting the goddess Isis feeding her baby Harpocrates, the god of silence. But to a 14th century Roman Catholic, it might very well have appeared to be Pope Joan, since she's wearing heavy robes and a sort of crown not unlike one a 9th century Pope could have donned. There is a wee bit of an issue with this theory, though, because when Martin Luther saw the statue he believed to be of Pope Joan, he described her as nursing her baby with one hand and wielding a papish scepter in the other. The statue at Chiramonti Gallery today has no such scepter, and frustratingly, Luther's very Spartan description is nevertheless the most detailed one available. Additionally, for this theory to work, you've got to get this statue, Joan or otherwise, from the street to the gallery, and there is no good provenance for that. Especially seeing as a Lutheran historian claimed that it was thrown into the Tiber River by Pope Pius V in the 1560s. Neither the Via Sacra nor the statue of the mother giving suck get us anywhere closer to the truth. And neither, I'm afraid, does the monument supposedly placed at the spot of Joan's death. That a monument of some sort existed outside the city walls seems fairly safe to say. It's described by four different writers between the 1250s and the 1420s. What's more, at least three of these writers must have chronicled the monument independently from one another, but we can only reach that conclusion because each of them records a different inscription from the others, which is suspicious, right? All of them agree that it was six words long, though, and that all six words began with P. So, it's probable that some of the inscription was just initials, and people filled in the blanks of what they might have meant, or else that some of the words were rubbed away and difficult to make sense of. The only two words that are consistent across all four descriptions are potter patrum, or father of fathers, which the commentators assumed to be of Christian origin. But potter patrum was the title of the high priest of the cult of Mithras. So, if the monument really existed at all, it was almost certainly much older than the Pope Joan story, dating back to roughly the time of Christ, and was almost certainly meant to commemorate or celebrate some person or event in the Mithraic religion. You can scratch that one right off. But what you're really here for is the chair, right? <laughs> The sex-checking Pope chair is a widespread and favorite bit of trivia, and has been for many centuries. In fact, 
Rumors and reports of the chair and the ceremony exist separately from the legend of Pope Joan for a few hundred years. And only in the 1490s did people begin to sensibly combine them, seemingly realizing only at that moment why the bishops would want to double-check their prospective pope's junk. If there really was a ritual for feeling the pontiff's coin purse, it's just as likely, or even more likely, that this was to confirm they weren't elevating a eunuch rather than a woman. But they weren't doing either. The thing that makes the papish gender reveal party rumor so persistent is, well, it's fun to crack wise about, isn't it? You can even get away with the phrase papish gender reveal party, and that's the sort of thing that might stick with you. Papish gender reveal party. But the other thing that's made the rumor so persistent is that, yes, there was a chair with a hole in it used in the naming of a new pope. Two of them, actually. They both still exist to this day, one at the Vatican Museum and the other at the Louvre. They're really grand looking, made from dark red marble. And yes, they have big old holes under the tushies. They were used though, not because of the holes, but because of their grandiosity. Their history isn't totally clear, but they seem to date from classical Rome and were probably discovered by Dark Age Christians at an old Roman bathhouse. They were so beautiful and well-crafted that they were, at some point or another, brought to the Vatican and included in the election process. But the reason they have holes is that they probably started out life as toilets, which is great. So the seat is a dud, the monument is a dud, and both the street and the statue are ambiguous at best. Things are not looking so hot for Pope Joan. But don't worry, the best piece of evidence is still to come. Next time on The Holy She Part 2. Music for this episode provided by Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Right before Christmas, I put out a call for your support, and you answered it with gusto. Thank you to everyone who left reviews, shared episodes, and told others about the show. And even greater thanks go out to everyone who signed up to be patrons, especially Michael Bauer, Connor Mann, Andy Felt, Kim Vaccarella, and One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Land Shark, which is definitely a real name. If you'd like to join the land sharks who make this show possible, head on over to patreon.com slash the constant to sign up to sponsor the constant. For your contribution, you'll get ad-free and early access to new episodes, as well as an ever-expanding catalog of bonus content with new bonus episodes delivered every month. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where in 2011, the spirit of a 19th century cardinal named John Henry Newman interceded to miraculously save the lives of a mother and her unborn child, securing his sainthood in the process. This has been The Constant. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. 
Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.